listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. Um, this morning, we are going to be hearing from Brendan Woodhouse, who does sea search and rescue in the Mediterranean. He's a firefighter in Matlock. He worked as a former reservist combat medic deployed in Afghanistan in 2014. And... When he saw all those awful pictures of people in boats and heard about all the the, the deaths at sea, he really wanted to do something. And so he worked in the Calais refugee camps for a couple of years, um, but then decided that his his sort of skills as a a firefighter, as a combat medic, um, could maybe be put to even better use actually at sea. So... um, in this first extract, he's going to be talking about um, the, the first lot of search and rescue he did, which was um, on the island of, of Lesvos, which is the gateway to Europe for many people fleeing war and poverty. Lots and lots of refugees arriving on those shores. So this is when he's not at sea as such, but helping to rescue people whose boats are just washing up onto shore. I, I arrived with a group called uh, Lighthouse Refugee Relief, which um, did uh, did landings and did spotting and and passed out the first bits of dry clothes to the people that were arriving really cold and really wet on the beaches. But they also had a place called Caracas Lighthouse, which was um, quite away from the main landing beaches and the lighthouses is the most dangerous place in Lesvos. It's um, the most dangerous landing point that there is. The lighthouse, some of the refugees saw it as a homing beacon to aim for, but actually it's there to warn people of the dangers of rock of the rocks out of there. And um, there's a tide that crosses across the front of it, and it's just absolutely awful. 23rd of December, 2015... I was on lookout, it was 10 to 6 in the morning. It was a clear sky, but it was obviously, it was pitch black at in, you know, 10 to 6 in the morning in December. There were a few little waves coming in, nothing dramatic, but when we saw this boat coming in really quickly, um, I went to wake up the team leader, said, look, this boat's going to land, we've not got any time to divert it, it's coming in, it's coming in like quite quickly. We need to just get out, get down there. React. Can you go and wake, wake the others up? And then, as that, as we was talking about it, the boat hit the rocks. Um, one of the tubes exploded, and the people that were on board were thrown into the sea. I remember seeing that they had little uh, little torches. Maybe maybe the, the torches from their phones were shining out towards towards where the rocks were to see if they could guide them in safely. And then this big bang happened. Then all the lights went in the sky. You could hear this big scream and then silence and blackness as they all hit the water. The um, there was a period of silence and then all of a sudden screaming again. You could hear you could hear children shouting out uh, shouting out for the mums and dads. You could hear parents shouting out the names of the children, and um, it, was, it was completely chaotic. I zipped up my wetsuit, which I was wearing 24-7 at the time, and 
scrambled down to the beach. I uh, started swimming. I'd been teaching people the night before, don't go above your waist, but then how can you not swim out to rescue when you can hear children screaming? You just go, you react on it, don't you? So um, I swam out. I found a little family of five first. There was a little, a little boy, maybe two years old, in the middle of them that... Every single time there was a wave that was going over his face and then he spent the time in between the waves trying to spit the water out and breathe back in again and then another wave would hit him. So I realised that they needed some help first to drag them to the shoreline a little bit. And then I swam out and there was a, a woman in her 70s or 80s who whose life jacket wasn't fitting. It was a fake life jacket anyway, but um, her life jacket wasn't fitting and her arms were just pushed up high in the air. As the uh, as she saw me, she she thought I was rescuing her, but I kept on swimming because I could still hear children screaming. I took that choice to go to them rather than her, and I remember her face of disappointment as I swam by her. Um, I came across the boat that had capsized, which was upside down. I looked underneath it; there was nobody there, but there were maybe eight kids holding on to it at the time. I thought, well, they've got something to something to hold on to. I could still hear this one piercing scream over and over and over again, which was further out, and I kept on swimming towards that. And there was a guy next to this... It was a woman that was screaming with her arms outstretched towards Turkey and a sister that was next to her trying to drag her back towards Greece. And there was a guy next to them who said that there was a baby that she'd lost, which is why she was screaming. And that baby was, and he pointed the the direction of it. And there was a, the things that had tipped out of the boat were a a mixture of bags, life jackets, the fuel cans, all kinds of stuff. And they were all floating and drifting out to sea, maybe, maybe 50 to 70 metres away from the sea. But another, it was about another 20 metres away from us. And I swam towards them. Now, the, the very first bag that I went to turn over it wasn't a bag at all it was the the baby really luckily the first thing that I put my hand onto um but it was face down in the water I looked at it and um I wasn't breathing its face was completely ashen its lips were blue and um you know that's a really overwhelming feeling when you find you find something like that um but I knew that there'd be a chance if I could get it back to shore so it was just wrapped in a little bundle and I, I put it on my chest. I did backstroke, I did little compressions as quickly as I could as I was doing backstroke with one arm. The other arm that was holding it, I was doing little compressions with. Um, and after a while, I got back to the shore. I was able to put my, my toe down onto a rock and balance. And then I turned the baby over. Now, what one of the, the bits of training that the teachers with both in the military and with the army, with the fire services, to give five rescue breaths to infants that aren't breathing. So I went to do those, and on the second breath, the baby sicked up the water and started screaming like a little newborn baby. Um, it was completely mind-blowing. I, I, I was able to, to swim on and pass it on to somebody else, but... Uh, the adrenaline, the emotion, the exhaustion, everything really kind of hit me all at once. And I remember sat 
so, kneeling on this rock again on all fours, looking out to sea, panting, and Heckler, who this Icelandic girl who was a team leader, um, saying to me, "Oh, Brendan, we need to go go back out there again." I, I said, "Did you see that?" She says, "Yes, just we need more. We need to go and do more." I said, and I knew I couldn't. Um, so she said, "Okay, well, get back up to the up to the hospital and help the doctor." And I looked out to the sea and I could see the old lady who had swam by being brought into shore by an Italian volunteer called Giada, who was bringing, her, bringing this old lady in. I remember seeing um, the boat that was capsized, a, a Greek fishing boat had arrived and was taking the people off that boat. And um, the rest of my team had all, by that point, got into the water. Most of them had been, been in the water and gone out. There was still a doctor up in the in the in the little makeshift hospital that we built, and then the the last team member was the guy that was carrying his baby, running up the cliffside with her in her arms. I just remember feeling that what we'd done was incredible. That we'd, we 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 were going to save everybody, and there was thirty five people in the water that day, and we'd we'd saved all of them, which was mind blowing, really, and, and impossible to believe in other ways. The, the last point I wanted to make on this was like I got to the hospital a little while later and there was this baby and she was she was uh, suffering from severe hypothermia at the time so uh, I, I heated up a, heated up uh, um a, 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 like one of the bags of fluids that we used to to put in people I heated one of these bags up to make it like like a hot water bottle put it on the baby and then helped the doctor with with the oxygen into into her, and the mother came in after a little while. I remember her initially feeling that we, that we were putting oxygen in the baby because it was dead, and then realizing that the baby was still alive. And remember her, you know, kissing kissing my hands and kissing the baby, and the the the, the tears of relief. I remember them really vividly. And the the point I was going to make was, I remember then looking down and seeing that that baby she had a little hat and a blanket on that were donated by a girl from Derbyshire the oxygen going into her lungs was again donated by English people who have there was a pub in Nottingham that that um called the white lion in Beeston and the they had a little pint bar on the on the side of the bar with a little makeshift label on that said four refugees and that helped pay for the oxygen that was going into the baby other people from around the country had, had helped fund my flights to get me there. And I remember just thinking, did you know, at this point in time, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of small contributions of everybody, you know, myself included, that have gone into help, helping save this baby and helping make this big difference. And, um, and that's really been replicated throughout my time over and over and over again that people are doing the most incredible things by donating to the rescue organisations, by being involved and just sharing the word and letting people understand how important this whole thing is. And, and yeah, that's that's kind of the point I want, wanted to make all the way through this interview.
we are listening to Brendan Woodhouse talking about his account of his search and rescue work um, in the Mediterranean. In this next section, he is going to be talking about when he actually went out to sea with a charity called Sea Watch. Um, some of the audio in this, I'm afraid, is not fantastic because every now and then the signal sort of opted out, so you, you need to tune in a bit. But he's basically talking about the boat that he was on and the boats that the refugees were on. I've been involved mainly with an organisation called Sea Watch. Now, they're a German search and rescue organisation who really are incredible. They've got a couple of ships at the moment. They, 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 did, have a, they did have boats in Lesbos, but sad, sadly um, uh, it's been criminalised in, in Greece and we're not allowed to go and rescue refugees. They leave it all down to their coast guard, which is fine, but you know, it's, it's a really sad indictment of European policies where where humanitarian rescue is being criminalised and, in fact, just helping people in the camps is criminalised. You're not even allowed to give a bottle of water to somebody arriving on a beach in Lesbos at the moment. So, so Sea Watch now have a, a, a team in... Uh, it, they have two ships and they have a rescue team and on those boats, they, they've got the Sea Watch 3 and the Sea Watch 4. Um, I can talk about the Sea Watch 3 because I've not worked on the Sea Watch 4. They have 22 crew on that, on that ship. Three of the crew will be you know, qualified to drive the ship. You know, like, so there'll be captains or there'll be chief mates or second mates. And then we have a team of engineers. Predominantly, by the way, these people are all volunteers. We do have the chief engineer is, off, is usually somebody that's been on the ship a few times and the captain will often be a person that's paid, but pretty much everybody else is a volunteer. And then we have a couple of people who are, uh, who are deckhands who will, uh, and, a, and a bosun, they're the people that make sure that the ship works properly. Um, but then also we have two speedboat drivers, of which I, I'm, I'm one of, and we have a, rib, uh, a, a, speed, a team leader for the speedboats. We also have a, a hospital on the, on the ship, and we have a team of, um, in the last mission I was on, there was three doctors and one nurse. And then we have people that um, uh, are capable of looking after the people once they arrive so we have what we call a guest coordinator we, we don't like to to refer to the people that are on our ship as anything other than our guests um, so we have a guest coordinator who will work hard at understanding what their issues are understanding what their needs are um, making sure that they've got food that they've got blankets that they've got enough clothes listening to them um, and uh, essentially looking after their daily needs um, and then we have a protection officer who the protection officer will uh, ensure that any refugee that has come from, from torture, which is pretty much most of them, uh, the vast majority of them have been tortured in some way. Um, and for the women, most of the women that we rescued, most of them have been raped, I'm, af I'm afraid. Most of the time, the, the boats are, or the rubber boats that come out, they'll generally have around about 100 people on. They'll, uh, the tubes on the side of the boat are, are often starting to deflate or, or 
have, have lost some of their air. They're not in very good condition. None of the people have life jackets on, and uh, on these rubber on these rubber boats. Occasionally, you'll see some on a small wooden boat that have life jackets on, but even in those cases, they're fake life jackets. And after five minutes of being in the water, they start to absorb the water and actually sink people even even further. Um, the mix of fuel and seawater gathers inside of the bottom of the boat. Now, that often we find ourselves with people on the boats who have uh, burns from that fuel and seawater that mixes in the bottom of these boats. Um, and Now, normally on the outsides of the boat, the men sit on the tubes, and in the middle of the boat, it's seen as being a safer place to sit, and that's women. And unfortunately, that where they're sitting is where the fuel mixes with the water. So you can imagine they get burned in really delicate places. Um, and uh, usually after we've done a rescue, we, we our medical teams will be treating them for burning in the hospital in those places. There are, um, there are a mix of people on those boats from a variety of nations. Um, I would say probably, probably just under a quarter of, of them are children. And most of those children are, are without parents. You know, there'll be 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old lads mainly that have left home, you know, two or three years earlier and um, will have made it somehow across deserts, somehow... Onto uh, through, through the smuggling networks and somehow onto, onto one of these rubber boats. Do you know? I say this all the time to people. Do you know if these were white people, they, they would be there'd be movies made about their heroism. We'd be talking about them in uh, in the news every day. These people have crossed crossed deserts. They've run through uh, run through prison networks. Have been sold as slaves. Have escaped in many in many cases. Um, They've been out at sea. They've been captured again by the Libyan coast guard. Been returned. Some of the people on our boat have been. We find them on their third, fourth, fifth time of trying, and then they're sold back into the smuggling networks, where where they're tortured in ransom phone calls to their parents. You know, if if a white person endured as much as what they have done and then made it to safety, they'd be uh, they'd be we'd be we'd be treating them like heroes. We would have books and films made about them um, and instead in our news they are painted as monsters. In this, the final section, Brendan is talking about the rescue work that he actually does at sea. Um, and I must just say, there are some of the, the things he talks about. Uh, it, it's been upsetting already, but this is, yeah, it's, it, it is a bit upsetting. We were told about a boat that um, was 12 miles from our, con- our location and it, it had sunk. Um, a, a Maltese aircraft had spotted it from the from the sky, and um, they reported that uh, fifty people were in the water. 
Um, we proceeded as fast as we could, but not going all the way there, knowing that the speed that we go and it's distance from us, we weren't going to be able to save everybody, and we didn't. I took the boat, took the speedboat as fast as it could, fast as it goes, and and then we saw some dots on the horizon, which were, turned out to be boats, and then. As we got closer, more dots, which were people in the water. As we got there, we started pulling, you know, we, the, the people were screaming. And it, it, the boat, one of the boat that was there in attendance was the Libyan Coast Guard as well. So people were really scared of being on that. They were scared of drowning. They'd been in the water. We, it took us around about half an hour to get there. So we knew that a lot of people would already be lost. And we just started pulling them in, one after the other. But they were coming in the boat in such a dreadful condition. They really were. Um, they, they had foam coming out their nose and mouths. And um, they were hypothermic as well. I remember one guy, his lips were chattering up and down. And he kept saying over and over again, no Libya, no Libya, no Libya. Again, having to calm him down so he could keep on rescuing people. And so it went on like that. I remember see, seeing a girl on the... She was 22 and she was on the Libyan Coast Guard boat. She fought off the Libyan Coast Guard and then jumped back, jumped into the sea. She'd been in the water for over half an hour. For over half an hour, The Libyans had pulled her out and then put her on her boat and she chose to jump back into that water again to swim towards us because she's that, that afraid of being returned to Libya. That's what real fear is, to have a near-drowning experience like that. And the people that you've that pulled you out of the water or the Libyan Coast Guard, so you're prepared to jump back into that water and risk drowning again. It's incredible. I later found out that that girl, that was the first time that she'd ever swam. Um, we started pulling all the people in, and then eventually, we, uh, as, as we kept pulling more and more people in, eventually we realised that we're probably, there was probably nobody left. And we there was this one boy, though, he, kept, he said to me, um, he says... I can't find my brother. I've lost my brother. I've lost my brother. So I took him to the other speedboat. Is he on there? No. I took him to the life raft, which would put people on. Is he on there? No. And then we saw some splashing further on. Um, some splashing and then a hand cut, reach up and then disappear underneath the water. We got there and as we got there, the one of my team saw the body underneath the water going further down, but it was too far for us to reach. Um, and then we saw bubbles and, f and foam come to the surface and that boy drowned right in front of us. But, you know, we did a head count then, counting all the people that we'd rescued, found out how many people had been on their boat. There'd been 55 people on their boat. We counted 38 people that we rescued, which meant that 17 were missing. Um, he wanted us to keep on searching for his brother, but... These people were hypothermic. A lot of them had seawater inside their lungs. It was hard to get them back to the shore. So that's what we did. Um, we, but not to the shore, to the boat. We took them back to the ship where the real medical cases were treated for, for, for the burns that they had, for the near drowning that they had. We ended up having to do 10 medical evacuations from the ship over the coming days. We look after the people for, uh, for the next week as we waited for the Italians to give us a safe port to allow us to bring these rescued people to safety. We had to wait for them to do that. Can you imagine white people having to wait for a week after they've been rescued? It just wouldn't happen. And then um, 
And then that night after the rescue, this boy came to me. He said, uh, he says, thank you for rescuing me. I says, you're welcome, my friend. He says, I lost my brother, you know. I said, uh, you know, I'm, I remember, I'm really sorry, my friend. Um, we, we went as quickly as we could, but we were too late. And he says, uh, I, I said, what was your brother called? I want to remember. He said, his name was Samuel. I says, my friend, Sam, I'm, I won't forget that. I'm sorry. He says, it's okay. You tried. You did your best. I says, how old are you, my friend? He said, he's 17. I says, when, how old was Samuel? He said, 19. How old were you when you left home? They left home three years earlier. So they were, they were, uh, they were 14 and 16 when they left home. I says, wow, that's incredible. And then he said these words that'll just cut me to the bone every time. He, he said, Brendan, how do I tell my mother that my brother is dead? I said, um, my friend, you know, you, I don't know, but when it, when the time comes, you'll find those words. And this little boy, you know, here he is, he's risked everything for, for coming to Europe. And then his brother's just died. Now he's going to have to tell his mum that he, that his brother's dead, that her son's died. And then I spoke to him a bit more and, you know, he'd, what they came for, they, they, they were one of the few that wanted to come to England. Most of them don't want to come to England. He wanted to come. He just wants to come and play football. He wants to come and play for Manchester United. He's just the same kid as my kids, your kids. Just a little kid with a dream. I was, I was just saying I actually wrote a poem about um, called If They Were White. I wrote this poem as a, an acceptance speech. The Fire Brigade's Union gave me some uh, some award about a week ago and asked me to uh, do a speech about that. So this is part of that um, that speech. If they were white, if they were white, if they were white, there'd be no need for these speeches, no sucking leeches, no deaths on our beaches, no idiot preachers spitting words that aren't true. Like they come from a zoo, like they've escaped and they're dangerous. There'd be such a change in us. We'd see it with clarity if only we lived in a world with race parity. If they were white, there'd be no need for rescue. They'd just get on a plane, speak out their name. We'd treat them the same as though they came from Ukraine. We wouldn't allow them to drown in our sea if they looked like me. We'd open the gates to the walls that we'd built. We'd see it's a sin to do anything other than just let them in. If they were white, there'd be no deals with Rwanda. Pretty Patel would see it just like Uganda. With Idiar men, we'd just let them in. There'd be no deportations to faraway nations. There'd be no wave machines. But it's become so routine to treat fighting people so incredibly mean. And every time without fail that the Prime Minister fails, you'll see it splashed on the front of the mail. Look, the refugee boat has set sail. If they were white, they'd still be alive. If they were white, Samuel, who died in front of my eyes, he'd still be alive. If they were white, can you imagine that all of a sudden the papers went silent and nothing was said? Do you think that they'd never mention the dead? 
Can you imagine if those faces were pale? What would they say in that rag daily mail? Do you think they'd print words like cockroaches? Or maybe they'd hire buses and coaches if they were white, if they were white. If they were white, there'd be no need for drownings, no daily mail frownings. We'd build bridges, not walls, and the names that they're called all would fall. There'd be none at all. There'd be boats and planes to whisk them away to the place where they're safe, and people would meet them, wholeheartedly greet them. If they were white, they'd be allowed to work. No one would smirk saying that they're here for a massive fake benefit system that just isn't true, but it's sticking like glue because it's repeated over and over and over again. Each and every one of them, they all have a name, but we've allowed their names to be numbers, and the numbers are high, and 24,000 people have died, 24,000 mothers have cried, so say it out loud for those that didn't survive, if they were white, if they were white. Brendan, um, uh, there just really aren't any words to say that uh, just so grateful for the work that you're doing and you just make, well, me and presumably lots of other people think about all those heroes escaping terrible conditions. Um, I didn't know about this when I spoke to Brendan and when I recorded the conversation with him, I only discovered it afterwards. He has co-written a book he's helped somebody who was a refugee who had a a hellish journey from his home in the Gambia um a man called Doro um they have written a book it is the story of Doro Gamane and it is being published by Unbound um but they need it they're doing a crowdfunder basically so if you would be interested um, in helping to crowdfund this extraordinary story of a man who has just been to hell and back, um, Doro, then just if you put in the search engine Doro Unbound, you will find it. Hi, Penny. Um, Gabby is an artist and activist and is going to be telling us about her latest project, Almost Invisible Angels. Um, Gabby, you are an artist, an activist, but could you just maybe tell our listeners just a little bit about what you do? Yeah, hi. Um, I, when I left school um, after university decades ago, I went and worked at Friends of the Earth in London and, um, yeah, that's so my heart has been always about um, fighting for the rights of people and um, creatures and plants uh, all over the world um, in our environment, protecting our earth. Um, I've gone on to uh, do community uh, kind of um, togetherness, bringing people together through playing out and with uh, street parties and working in um early years education but at last I managed to um, 
do my dream, which was to uh, do an art degree um, a couple of years ago, and I came out of that. And um, what I seemed to be doing was making art about the environment, making art that, um, you know, was, was a form of protest, a form of, of communication to say we need a better world. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's what I'm doing. It's been fantastic to see, because I've watched your work sort of over the last few years and you are you're one of those people who puts their sort of passion and heart and soul into what you do and produce some beautiful stuff if people wanted to look at um your other work other than what we're going to talk about today is there somewhere they can go do they just um, put you in the search i think engine i think or? if they if 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 i was if you google me gabby solly um yeah i've got a website that should come up Okay, right. Okay, so now the latest work that you've done is part of um, a sort of series of installations, um, which is part of a greater sort of movement called Paint the Land. Can you tell us what is Paint the Land? So Paint the Land is a, um, it's like a coming together of artists and writers um, and other creative people to write messages on our landscape, whether that's in the countryside or on the walls of, of towns using posters. Um, it's something that has been started by Writers Rebel, which is the literary wing of Extinction Rebellion and includes writers, really well-known writers like Margaret Atwood and Ben Ockrey, um, within people, you know, being the people who, who have, have done things with Writers Rebel. Um, this, the project I've been involved with, um, called Almost Invisible Angels, is working with an amazing writer who's based in Wales called Jay Griffiths, um, and has written various things, but the writing that we've been kind of focusing on is from her book, Why Rebel? Right, OK. Now, shall I play... No, we're going to play... I think let's play it at the end, because I've got the audio from the film that you've produced. So can you tell us about your specific Paint the Land project about Almost Invisible Angels? Yeah, so Almost Invisible Angels um, has come out of the writing that Jay has done on insects. She... Um, she was just so devastated by the idea of um, the fact that our insect populations across the world are crashing. You know, in some places, 50% um, of insect species are going extinct. Um, and obviously, we rely on, on insects to pr pollinate our food and to also to, to recycle the, the, the soil. They, you know, they take the dead things, they, they eat them, they bury them under the earth, and they produce the soil that then also produce our food without insects we are lost and actually insects you know also we're we're looking at invertebrates in general so you know not just the ones with six legs and wings and so tell us about the actual the the, the project what, what is so it? it's um we've made a film that was filmed around tinton abbey and it's basically calling on all of us to um re-evaluate um our feelings towards insects to treat them as if our life depended on them as as jay has said she wishes i wish that everybody who said they believed in angels would actually believe in insects mm. um so that the words at the center of our piece are angel are insects are truly the angels 
Um, and so, yeah, the film can be seen on the Writers Rebel um, YouTube channel. Um, there are a couple of amazing blogs on their website, the Writers Rebel website, one by Jay about the project and one also by Vicky Hurd, who's written a book called Rebugging the Planet. And she's got some really practical ways to look after insects, whether that's about um, conservation methods uh, and, and measures or whether it's about rebugging our, t- our attitudes in ourselves, learning to love and really appreciate these creatures around us. Yeah, no, it is. And I saw, I saw the actual sort of installation of that statement in the, is it called the nave or the aisle? It's Tintin the nave, Abbey. yeah. And it just so happened that, or well, maybe it was designed that way, um, the time of year meant that there were daisies. So this entire nave was filled with daisies and then this statement was just lying there slightly sort of ghost-like you couldn't quite see exactly what it said which is perfect actually for for what you're saying um shall I play some of the audio of this so what you need to see this film but I, I would just love to play some of the audio so this is Mark Rylance reading the words of Jay Griffiths um and you are seeing very beautiful uh, images of insects, of people, of Tintern Abbey. It's gorgeous. So here, listen to this. Imagine if our food were brought to us by dedicated and almost invisible angels. Imagine if these angels also gently and tactfully disposed the dead. They do not take the title of angels, being by nature bashful and unassuming. They go by other names. Firefly, bee, ant, caddisfly. The insects. Hallowed be their names. Hidden in their very multitudes, The insects are a secret commonwealth of goodness, dancing in constant attendance to living things. Without insects, the birds are flying starving into the great silence. Winged messengers, the birds can read the writing on the earth and know it for grievous truth. This is what extinction sounds like. The silencing of song that should have been forever theirs. Imagining a world without wings fills me with inconsolable sorrow. The neverness, the chill at the bone, and no grief like it. I wish that everyone who said they believed in angels would actually believe in insects. So you can hear, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's very, very beautiful, very moving, Gabby, well done. And I know it was a sort of, it was like a, a kind of an interna- international collaboration, wasn't it? It was... 
well, a lot that, of work. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the great thing about working today that, you know, online you can be in contact with people, you know, whether they're in Wales, London, Bristol, um, Denmark. So, yeah, yeah, we had a really great team spread all over the place, but a strong Bristol contingent to make it happen. As always, Bristol. We love you, Bristol. Um, well, Gabby, thank you so much for coming on the show to tell us about it. And for people to see the film, they go to the Writers Rebel website. Writers or? Rebel YouTube channel and their websites and yeah maybe I think if you look up Almost Invisible mm. Angels may, you know hopefully things yeah. should start popping up fantastic thanks well, thank, yeah well thank you and well done yeah very beautiful I'm back next week I'm going to be talking to uh, Bristol uh, councillor Rob Porteous who is also uh, an activist about the regeneration culture in XR. It's really, really interesting. So do tune in to listen to that. Uh, Very important part of the movement and very interesting um, for the wider world, I think. We could learn a lot from it. Um, So until then, um, thank you very much and see you next week.